0: Hello, and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we wanna tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business. I'm your host, Jeff Ma. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm Frank Dana. I'm a director at Softway, a company that helps businesses connect with their people to build resilience through culture building products, leadership development, and technology. Each episode of Love is a Business Strategy. We're diving into one element of business or strategy and testing our theory of love against it. Today, we're talking about love as a healthcare strategy. Over the past several months, we've seen a resurgence in the need for patient care and well-being with this COVID-19 pandemic sweeping the globe. Does love have a place in this rapidly changing environment? Here to help us answer that question, is Dr. Rod Brace. Dr. Brace, can I call you Rod?
1: Sure, sure. absolutely.
0: Okay, thank you, Dr. Brace. Okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna take some time to get that right. But I do want to introduce you, Rod, uh, because I think it's important that, that folks know who you are and where you're coming from. So, Dr. Rod Brace is a founding partner at Reli Advisors LLC here in Houston, which provides expertise in high-reliability organizational models organizational model and culture assessments and design, leadership development and governance board assessments and strategies, including governance and management interventions. Dr. Brace most recently retired as regional president and chief learning officer for the Memorial Hermann Health System in Houston. He served 30 years in operational positions, including chief regional operations officer and hospital CEO and COO in nonprofit and investor-owned health systems. Rod is an executive coach, national speaker, author, and faculty member at both the University of Alabama at Birmingham and ACHE. He also holds an MBA and PhD in management with a research emphasis in employee engagement, organizational cultures, and leadership. Rod, it's an honor to have you here.
1: My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks, Frank.
0: Also joining us, some familiar faces and voices, we have Mohamed Anwar, president and CEO of Softway. Hi, Frank. And Chris Petrie, VP at Softway. Cheerio. (laughs) Welcome, gentlemen. Okay, so, Rod, one of the things that we like to do at Love as a Business Strategy is start off with some icebreakers. And I've just received the icebreakers from our executive producer, Maggie. So I'd like to start with Chris. Chris, would you rather mentally or physically never age? Hmm. So the option is physically or mentally. Never is a strong word.
2: Yeah, that is such a (laughs) that's a a hard one. It's like I guess physically age (laughs) that when you're you're alive longer and you know mentally aging. What does that mean, really? Right, like you know, I feel like your brain is constantly hopefully developing and growing. So. It's not aging if it's developing, right? So you would, <laughs> so I, Yeah. I would never I would never physically age so that my brain can continue to grow and you know wisdom can be acquired.
0: Man, that's good. <laughs> I think you uh you answered that question very well. Okay. Um Rod, I'll go to you. Would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on your life? Hmm, that's good.
1: Uh rewind. I think uh, I think pause would uh, leave you second guessing all the time, and uh, you know start and stop many times a day. But to rewind, obviously, there's things that we say from time to time, or moves and decisions that we make that we'd like to redo. So I'll go with the rewind.
0: Okay, excellent, Mohammed. Yes, sir. Would you rather would you rather work more hours per day, but fewer days, or work fewer hours per day and more days? I'd work more hours and fewer days, so I have full days
3: to myself, not do any work.
0: <laughs> I like that. I, I second that. Chris thirds that. <laughs> Fridays off, oh, <also>. right? <laughs> so, okay. Thank you guys for 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 starting us out and having a conversation. It was all it was all themed around time. I like that. That's actually pretty uh, an interesting theme. Thanks, Maggie, for those. So, I want to get us started, Rod. I want to start off with you and and really kick things into high gear here. I, I want to talk from your perspective. Um, what are some of those unique challenges that you're seeing in healthcare right now?
1: Yeah. So, obviously, the pandemic has caused healthcare organizations to rethink how they do things. Uh, as you can imagine, healthcare organizations are very dependent on protocols and policies and procedures. But then, in the midst of that pandemic, a lot of those had to be thrown out. And um, obviously, need for speed, the capacity, surge of capacity, the uncertainty when all this began of um, how, the, how the virus was communicate between people, uh, caused everybody to rethink. And, and one of the interesting things, at least on the uh, teams that I've worked with, and I worked with some teams in New York City who got hit with is the hardest, was one of the things that they had to do is sort of redefine their roles very quickly. And so the HR person was no longer just about HR. They had other things to do with setting up uh, uh, testing tents and bringing in additional workers from all over the United States. And the uh, CFO was not just about the finances. Now they were in charge of uh, working to provide medical staff and so it caused uh, sort of a reset, a reshifting of those roles and responsibilities of those organizations. And as you can imagine, when you're having to do that in the midst of all this uncertainty, it, it really causes a lot of mental stress, a lot of mental pain. And, and many were dealing with issues at home, but they had to be at, at work. Um, we, we saw nurses who just uh, couldn't go back home because they weren't sure at the time if they were taking the virus back to their family. Uh, so it was a lot of um, burnout in in areas of, that people were already sort of working up against the edge of human capacity. And then we saw some issues of, of a term which has been called by some a moral injury, whereby physicians, nurses, and others were having to make decisions uh, regarding who gets this care, who gets this bed, or who, who goes in the emergency uh, room. And so as you can imagine, those are very difficult decisions to make when it involves another human life. And so it, it creates this moral injury when you know you should be doing something or you see something being done that you know should be do, uh, done differently, but it just is not possible during all this. So it's very chaotic times.
0: So I know that, I know that um, one of the massive and important factors in a healthcare is safety. Um, and safety is a, a massive priority. But uh, I'm, I'm interested to know, because we've talked about psychological safety on this podcast before, in those moments when you're having to make choices that you've never had to make before, um, when doctors and nurses are essentially in completely different capacities or roles, executives are in different capacities or roles, how have you seen psychological safety and the importance of psychological safety change or adjust as it relates to what's happening right now in the healthcare environment?
1: Yeah, so if we back up, of course, psychological safety is just this essence that you can be yourself, that, that I can come to the workplace, I uh, have people that I trust, uh, I can say things, I can do things, and if, if they're in error, then somebody will provide that information to me and a diplomatic and respectful way. And so in the in the midst of a pandemic, when this uncertainty is um, in place and just the speed of life of lots of patients showing up, lots of people not sure what they have, the, there were times and there are times where when we're in these new roles that it, you have to sort of rewire trust uh, that can I trust this person to do something that's not been done before? Can I trust this person to do something that's outside of their usual job? And and we know that if someone is asked to do something that's beyond their competence level, then we know that that can have a detrimental effect to psychological safety because they're just unsure of themselves. And so the flip side of that though is once you're in the midst of that battle, once you're in the midst of that firefight, uh, trust builds very quickly. <laughs> when when you have a team that comes together and they know the odds are against them and they know that they have to depend upon each other, then that trust can develop um, very swiftly in, in sort of that urgent and, and unforeseen atmosphere.
0: So I
3: guess, Frank, that relates to vulnerability-based trust in times of uncertainty risk and emotional exposure
0: i would say yes so, i think that, that 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 clearly articulates you know when you're in the midst of a crisis your you're able your capacity for forming bonds is increased uh, if you're open to building that trust that's something that we talk about a lot here is the idea that trust is vulnerability-based trust is as a collaboration of all three of those things um, and it sounds like a lot of that has had to happen rapidly in the healthcare environment.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the old adage of never waste a crisis is always true, regardless of what industry you're in. And so this crisis has uh, had good things come out of it. You know, For one, there were sort of archaic organizational models in place that were yeah. able to be streamlined very quickly. And people saw that we didn't need all those levels of decision making. It just give somebody the authority And then let them go. And and so even at the organizational level, there's benefit, but also at the individual level where I I learn something about myself and I learned that the extent of which I can operate under pressure is greater than perhaps what I thought it was. And or I more clearly see from an empathetic point of view what somebody else is going through. And I, I can help them in that. And so um, a crisis is always a great incubator for some improvement. That uh, you know, obviously, the key is that uh, you can't implode. Uh, there, there are many healthcare organizations who didn't do so well through this. Uh, they, they tried to stay within traditional lines of thinking. They tried to hmm. um, uh, perhaps ignore some things that they should have seen early on. Uh, I think not just healthcare, but there are a lot of organizations who didn't really respond with a long-term view of the pandemic. They thought, well, perhaps it'll be a month or two, and therefore I'm going to put stopgap measures in place, but I'll go back to the way life was in two months. And you know, many months later, they've not been able to return to that. And now they're sort of behind, behind the curveball on um, getting their organization up to pandemic and post-pandemic speed.
3: That's really right, interesting. I have a... Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. Uh, no problem. I was going to ask, so you just mentioned that there's some health systems that did well compared to the others. Besides the long-term view or anticipation, what other factors do you think lead uh, or have led these hospital systems to be more successful than others? What are the characteristics of some healthcare system versus the others that led them to be successful during these crises?
1: Yeah, so I I think in any organization, but particularly in healthcare, it's going to come down to leadership and how leadership responds to that crisis. And so healthcare is no different than other organizations. If you have a leader at the head of the organization that uh, high on ego, high on control, command and control models, Um, their bandwidth isn't big enough to uh, really take on the change necessary in in a crisis. And so the the narrowing of decisions happen we try to stay in a traditional mode and it just can't respond. And so those systems that did very well had leaders at the top that uh, gave that power to others, that they empowered people to say, here's the end result, here's the here's the outcome that we want, go do it, because frankly, we, each of us have so many things to do that we can't micromanage that situation. And my belief, micromanagement really comes from two things. Uh, one is you've either hired the wrong person, and so you have to, or you haven't trained them appropriately, you have to just really give them detailed step to detailed step, or the second, thing and the one that applies to this situation is that your ego is so big that you won't let other people do the the work. And so I think the health systems that sort of stalled throughout this had leadership in place that was not willing to give up uh, the control, give the power to others to innovate. And because it was uh, uncharted territory. And I I think one of the things that I I see a lot in my uh, coaching with my clients is that these leaders are held uh, to uh, higher levels of accountability. In other words, here's the annual plan, and here's what we want to achieve, and here's all the things you've got to do, but they're not given the authority to do that. And so anytime there's a disconnect between accountability and authority, it's going to be a disaster. And so I think those health systems that didn't fare so well during the pandemic, and some continue to this day, Are those that have not been willing to push that authority down to the people that had that were providing um the assignment to the accountability to
3: that's interesting
2: awesome thank you so we've been talking about the pandemic a lot um and to me that's been um you know a huge component in the current or the modern healthcare conversation but um prior to the pandemic there was a term that was being circulated that i came across which was high re- high reliability and you know i think that that's still relevant today and even the pandemic plays into high reliability but i would love to hear your sort of explanation of what that is and and you know sort of describe you know what what conditions or what what's true of a high reliable culture high reliability culture sure yeah, so
1: high reliability and that phraseology and approach um, really started many years ago with um, uh, people that were responsible for nuclear reactors or um, aircraft carriers and, and things that if there is something that goes wrong, it can be disastrous. So you can imagine any little thing that would go wrong in a, a nuclear reactor could have tremendous, um, com- tremendous in- impact on that. And so it's been adopted in healthcare probably for the last 15 or 20 years. And it just means that it's an industry or an organization that has a very high risk of severe, severe effects if errors occur. And so as you can imagine, in healthcare, those errors could be um, a medication error could cause a death or a misreading of of a a order that a physician gave to a nurse could cause the wrong treatment or wrong injury. And so high reliability means that you just structure your organization with this sort of preoccupation with failure, that we know that all humans uh, can fail, and therefore we must do everything we can to create a situation where at least the processes and the procedures help prevent that failure. Um, it it it's a reluctance to simplify. So, for example, oftentimes w- when something happens in our work and somebody makes an error, we say, "Well, it's because they weren't paying attention, um, and so they made an error." Well, that's really not the root cause of that. So, you know, what what caused them to not pay attention? What what other distractions were out there? What uh, resources didn't they have that could protect their attention? And so. It, it becomes this model of uh, really an operating model uh, that prevents uh, error at, at every possible place and just studies the science of errors and and really pushes that deference of expertise down in the organization so that it's not the CEO who's being asked how to fix this, but it's the people closest to the problem to fix it. Now, everyone can, um, I think every organization can adopt principles of high reliability. It's just those that, in essence, could cause a fatality are, are sort of um, more apt to do it these days. And not all healthcare systems have, have adopted these. I mean, there there's still hundreds of thousands of medical errors that happen every year in the United States. And so uh, a lot of my work, a lot of work of my colleagues that rely is, is really helping organizations understand those and then uh, trying to create an organization, a culture, really, that uh, is all about high reliability.
2: That's great. Can you share just some of the principles that you think could be relevant to um, healthcare as well as non-healthcare organizations out there?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, just, uh, for example, that principle of a preoccupation with failure. If you would look at uh, an organization such as yours, um, uh, wh- what are the mistakes that have happened in the past? Where are those errors most costly? Why did they occur? And then taking an approach where you just continually ask why, um, and I'll, I'll delve into areas I know nothing about to try to give you an example here in your world, but,
2: you <laughs> know, ready. if I was just gonna say an if example would a, be like, we haven't had Fridays off, right? We still haven't gotten that, you know, benefit from yeah, Muhammad okay. yet. So I can oh, imagine well, yeah, creating a lot of oversights, a lot of missteps, a lot of stressed, you know, <laughs> individuals creating work for clients and products that we're creating and, you know. You can start with that example. I'm just kidding. kidding.
1: So I I, I guess there was uh, some meaningfulness behind Frank's question of Muhammad Mm -hmm. a while ago.
0: Maggie's Maggie's trying to do inception over here. Just just for
3: clarity, they've been trying to get a four-day work week instead of a five-day work (laughs) week, and they want me to give Fridays off. So that's that's the whole story, Dr. Brace. Okay. Well let's let's solve that for them today. So let's
1: do it. The the first question is um, why can't we get Fridays off? And the, the initial answer might be, well, we have too much work to do that we've got to extend it to five days. Well, the next question then might be Is all the work that we have to do relevant? In other words, do we really need to do that work? Are there things that we're doing today that could be streamlined such that we don't need to do those and free up that capacity? And then if their answer to that is yes, then we would go to what is it about our normal day, our normal five-day work week that could be eliminated, that could be streamlined, that could be consolidated? And so it, it just becomes sort of this thread where you work backwards and backwards. And so the principle in high reliability is that you don't want to overly simplify. So we would overly simplify, but just saying we have to work Fridays because we got too much work and, and most mm-hmm. conversations would stop there. And so we always encourage people to ask why, 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 you know, five times you go through this, why, well, Why is it that we feel like we have too much work? Well, why? Well, because we've got to, you know, these clients are behind. Well, why are that work for that client behind? And so it's just why, why, why? That would would be one. Uh, Another principle of high reliability is commitment to resiliency, that a a lot of organizations lack resiliency. Uh, They give up. They get distracted. They sort of disengage from their work. And so as we teach people how to be resilient, as we teach them how the organization is resilient, then that helps them become more focused in their work, uh, become more engaged in their work. And I, you know, I tell you in your organization, in any organization, if everyone is fully engaged in their work, uh, you're, you're likely to increase your productivity by you know, 40 to 70%, depending on the engagement level of your employees. Um, I think another one for uh, another principle is this deference to expertise. Uh, Mohammed shouldn't be making all the decisions. I don't get the feeling that he does. I think he, he demonstrates a sort of deference to expertise. <laughs> uh, but how, how can we do that more? And so, in other words, you look through your organization and you look for those disconnects between who am I holding accountable for what and have I really given them the authority to get that done. And that's really where um, expertise gets um, lessened in its capacity uh, because they they don't have that ability to do that. Uh, Another principle is this idea of sensitivity to operations. And that just means that we don't work in silos. If something happens in this department, it's this interdependence, it will have some effect on other people. And so, through trusting and honest and open communication, we have the ability to be very sensitive to any little uh, flap of the, the butterfly wing in Frank's department and how that might affect Chris's department. And we, ha- we have, to, because if, you, if Chris improves his outcomes, his safety, his quality in his, his area, but it's at, at the expense of Frank's area, uh, then we've not really increased the overall um, level of quality and safety.
3: So I have a question regarding this high reliability systems. I know that you can institute technology, process, and the people side, the three components of building a full system. Where would you put the most weight on people, process, or technology in terms of building in a high reliability environment?
1: Yeah, so um, a great question. uh, But it, it's it's sort of a trick question. Uh, I, I think the answer is you, you can't. And, and here's the reason. So one of the principles of high reliability is that zero harm is a core value of the organization. And so zero harm would mean zero harm to the patient, zero harm to the employee, zero harm to the community, zero harm to the leaders. And so if any of those three people, processes, or technology is causing some harm, in other words, you say, I'm going to put more emphasis here at the detriment of the other two, then there is an element of harm there. Uh, now, naturally, if you're in an organization where we've got sort of technology is going well and it's hardwired and policies and procedures are going well and they're hardwired, and the only thing that's not up to its optimal level is employee engagement, then obviously we would put our attention there. And generally speaking, that that's how it works. In mm. most organizations, not just healthcare, it's the employee engagement that is really uh, sub optimized uh, most of the time. And, and largely it's, it's because people don't necessarily understand. I mean, they, they sort of understand what engagement is. I know it if I see it. But I don't understand what drives it. There, many years ago, there was an interesting, I think, McKinsey study that uh, asked that very question of leaders: "Do you know what? You know, can you describe a highly engaged employee?" And um, most were able to describe it. And then it asked, "Well, what are the causes of that engagement?" And, and I think it was over seventy percent of, of the leaders; these are senior executives of the company couldn't name the drivers of engagement, at least those drivers that have been found through science and research, they couldn't name them. Uh, They really thought it was things like, well, you gotta give them stretch goals and you gotta show some tough love and you you gotta throw a bunch of money at them. All of those actually for somebody that's intrinsically motivated are, are, uh, they disengage them from the work. And so I think we have this culture of leadership that just sort of steps aside and lets people be the way they are. They they don't understand how to engage people, and so uh, you know the the Gallup folks have done a survey for the last I think almost fifteen years every year to look internationally at employee engagement, and generally about seventy percent of people across all organizations, all industries, are are not optimally engaged in their work, yeah. and so. For in healthcare, at least the world I live in, that, that can be dangerous if somebody's mm-hmm. giving a dose of medicine and they're not engaged in what they're doing, they're, they're not sort of focusing on that. That can create serious harm to, to death. And so I think to your question, Mohammed, it, it's whatever needs the most attention as long as by doing so, we don't uh, create a detrimental effect that causes harm in the other areas.
3: Got it, that makes sense. I, I do think though that process and technology you have a little bit more control because you know you can design technology to work a certain way and you know it's going to operate that way 99.9% of the time and uh, and you know processes can be defined the same way and have technology work around the process or work within the confines of it. But people on the other hand, it's the largest variation, like the variable, right? Like one day the same person might be fully engaged the next day because of something that may have happened in their home or their personal life impacts their engagement level at work as well. So um, yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think you definitely don't wanna harm any one of those, but the one that I think has the most chances of having fluctuations and the engagement level versus you know, optimizing that part of the system, that's the hardest one, that's the trickiest one.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think one of the mistakes that we make in terms of implementation of a strategy or project, whatever it might be, is that we assume that all implementers are the same and yeah. they operate at the same level every day. And and they don't, they they obviously don't. And, and so we have to at least create an environment in which they can flourish in that. We, we, we're we not able to make people be engaged, uh, they have to choose to be engaged, but we can create a culture and an environment in which it's easier to be engaged. Sure.
0: Now, I actually wanted to ask a little bit about that. The idea that you know a high reliability organization is operating, and we've talked about a lot of the principles that you mentioned, um, but I, I want to know a little bit more about, like, how that actually manifests in the doctors and the nurses and the patient care as a result of building these high reliability organizations. What have you seen in your experience when organizations and healthcare organizations were able to start implementing this type of approach, um, and how has that trickled down to the doctors, the nurses, and the patients?
1: Yeah. So it it it. Um... The concept, the philosophy can, I guess you could say trickle down, but the, the implementation of it has to really start from the nurses and physicians and people doing the work. And, I, and I, I think the in the broadest concept it is, we know that healthcare is very complex and there are lots of moving parts to it. And therefore we must assume that there are gonna be failures. And we make that assumption and how do we put in place mechanisms for us to identify those and then fix what the the true source is, that why, 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 why. And the best way to do that is create a culture where people uh, feel safe in bringing forward uh, what we call near misses. I, I almost made a mistake or almost made an error or um, safety issues. And they raise their hand and they say, this happened. Let's talk about how it happened and how we can prevent it. Now, easier said than done <laughs> because y- you have people who are fearful of being judged that I'm a bad nurse, I'm a bad physician. If I bring up that I made a mistake, uh, you have uh, sort of the pol- politics of relationships that, well, you know, som- somebody else is going to get upset if I tell them their policy or procedure is not working. And so once all the human messiness gets in that, it tends to not happen. Very busy people don't necessarily want to take the time out to sort of record what happened or almost happened. And so it's the job of a high-reliability culture to make sure that you create an environment in which that happens as the starting point. And it it usually occurs in what, in high-reliability, we call a just culture. And a just culture just means that there's trust uh, and honest communication such that people will bring those forward. And there's, uh, there's not going to be a punitive reaction. uh, When the nurse makes an error in an an injectable, there's not going to be a punitive reaction that says, well, you're a bad nurse, you're fired. Frankly, that happens a lot uh, Mm -hmm. throughout uh, a lot of cultures, but the high reliability cultures would say, let's stop, Let, let's talk about why that happened. Uh, well, the nurse was distracted. Well, why they were distracted? Well, they were short a couple nurses on their floor today and so they were working shorthanded. Um, or the, the injectable for the drug that she was supposed, to, or he was, she or he was supposed to put uh, inject into the patient it looks very much like another drug that they actually chose by error. And so it's in the, in the place that we store those drugs. Um, uh, and, and nowadays, we use technology so that they're sort of the barcodes where you barcode the patient and then barcode the medicine. and It'll tell you if that, but, but still things happen. i had an instance where a pediatric nurse was um, giving a pretty routine in, uh, injection to a newborn and she happened to pick up the vial and it just looked different to her. And even though as as we went back and we investigated it, what we found was it, even though it had the right label on it, it was mislabeled at the manufacturer. And it was actually actually something that would have been uh, probably fatal to this child, but all the processes are in place, all the things are there, but it was that intuition, it was that high, highly engaged eye of that uh, very seasoned nurse who said, yeah, this, this doesn't look right. Let me Let me just stop, just stop and try to figure out what's going on. And, and so the high reliability organizations are very good at creating those cultures where every day we're solving new problems. Every day we're finding ways that a, a matter of safety uh, could, have, could have been optimized. Uh, every day they're trying to talk to the people at the bedside and say, well, what, what created distractions for you today? What created barriers? What created um, a sense of urgency that was perhaps beyond your capacity? What areas of training do you need? Where are you not feeling competent in that? Um, and so it's it's really more so of a culture. Obviously, there there are lots of ways that you can organize around committees to do the research and in the, in the investigation, training protocols. But it really comes down to having a just culture, where the, there, there's nothing punitive about saying I made a mistake, unless. Uh, that person willfully disregarded the rules, willfully went against the protocols that we have. And so a just culture is not necessarily a blameless culture. It just means that uh, that somebody had to really break every rule to try to do it their own way, which caused harm to somebody.
3: so how do you how do you get people, even in that scenario, I could see, asking questions like, so why did this happen? And why do you think this could have been, you know, the reason and so forth? Um, I'm just trying to empathize uh, with maybe the nurses being asked those questions. Would that be intimidating and cause fear? Why why would a nurse be open to responding to those questions with honesty? And like, what what have you experienced? And what are, what are some of the strategies or tactics that are used to still get to the bottom of those questions without causing fear
1: yeah that the I think one of the biggest challenges for a, a healthcare organization that's moving from what we might call a fear-based culture a punitive culture to a culture of just culture a high reliability culture is just that where people have been, uh, taught that it's not okay to speak up. And, and mm-hmm. as we all know, history is a great teacher. And so whatever happened to me historically, I, I would expect going forward until I build a trust that it's not going to happen anymore. And it's that bridge of trust that's very hard to cross. And so in our experience, it, it basically is you just do it. You know, you you just find opportunities to demonstrate that we're not gonna be punitive in our Mm -hmm. review of these. And uh, and generally what happens is you'll have a group of employees who are perhaps a little more confident in their ability to kind of advocate for themselves or navigate these meetings. And, And we try not to make these meetings, you know, 10 people in a room firing questions at people. They're small and they, they start with a handful of people that have um, have an appreciation and empathy for it. And so you generally will have the, the uh, people that'll come forward and test the new, the new structure. And once the other colleagues see that it went well for them and mm-hmm. they can encourage other people, then uh, it, it's kind of snowballs. But it's uh, it's very hard, particularly when a mistake was made by a person, and particularly if it's a professional such as a nurse or a physician that you know licenses are involved or staff privileges are involved, it's it's difficult for them to do that. And so, once they do it, uh, then we celebrate that. And so we've had instances where we'll um, and many organizations do this. Uh, you'll bring those employees to the board meeting and let. The board recognize them for their heroics of what they did coming forward. Thank them for making this information available to us. Thank them for having that commitment to zero harm, and, and demonstrating, you know, through pictures in the newsletter of them there, or other ways, uh, people know that our our concern is for zero harm, and that that would include no harm to the employee if uh, punitive measures were not uh, to be used.
3: Wow, wow. I, I definitely see that it's it, it does require quite a bit of courage and vulnerability from the employee standpoint to be able to say, "Hey, you know, I I, I made a mistake, or I was about to make a mistake." That that definitely takes a lot of courage. Um, how do you see the leadership um, playing a role in setting up this culture of just culture or high reliability environments?
1: Yeah, so. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that we often experience is the CEO of the organization saw a presentation, saw one of our presentations, read some articles, whatever. And, okay, now we want to be a high, highly reliable organization. Uh, let's show everybody a PowerPoint. Uh, I'll talk about how it's important. And then, voila, we're there. Right. Um, and and what has to happen is you really have to deconstruct how things have gotten uh, accomplished in that organization for many years because it's going to take the same path for this quote project. And high reliability is not a project at all. It's a it's a philosophy. It's a it's a way of being. And so, w- what is oftentimes detrimental is sort of that second or third tier of leaders who said, "Okay, the boss said we got to be high reliable, highly reliable now." Um, their employees know. <laughs> That they haven't bought into this non-punitive behavior, particularly when they still have a fear-based culture, and um, and and unfortunately, even through the pandemic, uh, at least in my experience with my coaching clients and our uh, the work the organizations that we work with, fear-based culture has sort of been increasing, not decreasing Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, because um, nurses were. Uh, seeing colleagues being laid off, uh, cutbacks, hospitals taking uh, great financial burdens through this, and and so as you well know, that the human mind is really constructed to try to make sense of everything. And so I can't make sense of why people are being fired, and I might be next. And obviously, if I make a mistake and admit to it that during these trying, trying times, that I'm I'm going to be gone, or the last time I admitted to my boss that I made a mistake, he or she just went crazy on me and you know was very punitive. Um, you, you just can't have that. And so a lot of our work is also assessing the leadership. Uh, generally, when we go into an organization, we'll say, think about the top 20 leaders either formal or informal that's, that's gonna require to move this forward. Then we use some um, leadership assessment tools that uh, do it's a 360 that not only looks at their self-evaluation, but also the traditional stuff of peers and colleagues and so on, but it, it has a third piece to it that's pretty unique in that it then uh, ranks them a percentile against all other leaders or about over hundred thousand leaders in this database that, uh, that we use. And so we're able to see through that that um, this leader uses fear based tactics with their direct report or this leader on the opposite scale has a very high characteristic of caring connections or empathy or a selfless leader. And so it's those leaders that we know are going to have a better chance of, of really creating this just culture where, where they're not perfectionists, where they don't have to be. They're not, uh, you know, overly, um, disrespectful to people. They're, they're not accusatory. It's those type of leaders that are really going to have a tough time all of a sudden convincing people. Oh, yep. uh, I slept on it last night. And today I'm, you know, I'm not going to be punitive anymore.
2: You know, as I've been listening to you talk, it sounds like there's a, I guess a high correlation between high reliability and inclusion um, and the need for leaders to really, Think about how they make space for, you know, their direct reports or folks that are maybe on different teams who might be closer to the, you know, front lines and making sure that they have a voice, but not just a voice, but a platform to speak from or they don't have a voice. It's given to them or, you know, the leader sort of gives the microphone over and sort of steps back. But it sounds like there's that high correlation.
1: Yeah. So even in the one most extreme, Chris, if we really have bought into the concept of zero harm, then anything that excluded people or was uh, divisive in that would create harm. And therefore, you know, we should not be about that. But then on the other the other more positive scale of that, a a broad set of backgrounds and thoughts and uh, abilities to manage innovation those are very beneficial to a culture of high reliability because every day in healthcare, there's some introduction of a a new disease or a new technology or a new government policy. And so the more minds that we can bring around that, that have different perspectives to do that, the better we're gonna be prepared to crack the code on those complexities. And so absolutely a just culture is built on justice. And, and justice really has to be equally applied.
2: Wow. That's awesome.
0: And I, I wanna ask, um, this has been a phenomenal conversation, by the way. It has not felt yeah. like 44 minutes and 12 seconds. And I promise I've been like yeah.
2: taking notes if you've been seeing me right now, like yes. <laughs> writing, I've been taking yes. notes as you've been talking, so.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And I, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask quickly before, um, before we let you go, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how you got started down this style of, of management and, and leadership. Uh, what what inspired you to move in this direction and what continues to inspire you today to continue to move this forward for organizations interested in moving into high reliability?
1: Yeah, so um, you know there, there have been a lot of things but probably the most um, impactful to me is when I was uh, early on many years ago as a hospital CEO, um, first hospital i ever had. i I've been on the job a, a couple weeks and uh, one afternoon our chief nurse officer came to me and, and she said, Rod, I need to share with you that we've had a mer- medical error and a uh, nurse gave the wrong medication and uh, unfortunately it uh, led to the death of this uh, gentleman in his early 40s and it's our practice here at the hospital that we would meet with the family uh, that nurse that created there uh, is welcome to join us if she wants uh, it's not uh, not an obligation on her part and so I've set that meeting up for this afternoon and we're going to meet with this gentleman's wife and um, I said oh, yeah okay I'll you know I'll be there she said I'll, I'll sort of lead the conversation and so we, we get to that in uh, this, obviously, this bereaved uh, wife, uh, she was a mother of two teenage uh, twin girls. Um, the nurse chose to come to the meeting and she obviously was in tears and explained how she had been in a hurry. And she this was before barcoding and all that had uh, picked up the wrong medication and gave it to this uh, uh, gentleman. And so we, uh, the nurse apologized. We all apologized. Um, the wife was very well composed, as, uh, more so than I would be. And, and so at the end of the meeting, I just said, ma'am, we're so sorry. And if there's anything we can ever do, please, please let us know. And to her credit, she said, um, Rod, I appreciate that. I, I, I don't think, there's anything you can do today we just we just need to sort of come together as a family but maybe in weeks to come if we could just talk about what happened and maybe these are some things that we could do that i could give you some pointers on that uh, this would prevent this for somebody else i said super absolutely frankly I, I was ready for the meeting to be over it was just one of the hardest meetings i'd ever had as a new ceo many weeks went by and i frankly had forgotten about it my secretary uh, came to my door one day and she said miss um, so and so I wanted to take you up on your offer to chat and i didn't the name didn't quite click with me and she said you, you recall it's the uh, the wife of the gentleman that passed from the medical error uh, mother of two twin teenage girls and i said oh yes absolutely just you know, ask her what time is best, have her come on by, I'll clear my schedule. And she she said, well, I talked to her and she said, uh, as you can imagine, she really didn't want to come back to the hospital, sort of bad memories there. And she asked, would, would you be willing to meet her for lunch? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, forgot about it again. Two weeks later, I'm looking at my calendar that morning to see what I have. And I see I have lunch with this lady. And frankly, a little apprehension uh, came into play that we're, you know, we're going to be out at a restaurant. Is she just, you know, going to lose it? Is she going to yell at me? You know, but I committed to doing it. So I went, so I showed at the lunch and sat down at the table with her. She was already there. And we, you know, exchanged some pleasantries and, and she said, um, I really appreciate you meeting with me. I, I think there are some things that I saw during our stay that I, I can help with, um, you know, reducing the, the load on the nurses of confusion. But before I do that, I would just like to show you something. And so she reached down beside her at the table in a little tote bag. And she pulls out and sits on the table uh, a photo album. And she starts to flip through those photos. said, so here's, here's me and my husband as we met in college. And here's where we, at our wedding, uh, here's the birth of our twins. Um, here's them at their uh, high school volleyball games. And she was flipping through this photo album. And after a few pages, the pages were blank. And she said, here's where I'd hoped to have pictures of my husband walking my daughters down the aisle, and here's where I'd hope to have family vacations, and here's where I'd hope to have pictures of him with our grandkids. And she said, "Um, frankly, Rod, your hospital took that from me. And I'd used the phrase, you know, my hospital, but I'd never heard it in that sense of your hospital, you, Rod, your obligation. Uh, to the patients that we have. And, I, and so that was the one that sort of set for me sort of my obligation to my employees and, and obviously the nurse that created this error w- wanted to quit, wanted to leave nursing. We talked her out of it. We made sure that we doubled down on nursing competence training. We brought in quality director. We, and, and so that really personalized it for me I think uh, over the years, I've worked with many professionals, uh, uh, my partners uh, in Relia, uh, Dr. Michael Shabbat, who you all know, and Chuck Stokes, uh, um, system CEO, nurse by background, have, have, have really taught a lot uh, to me about these principles. we worked together over, over a decade. Um, and so there's lots of other things, but I would say it goes back to that point in time where it was personal for me that I have to have a personal obligation to the people I serve uh, as well as the people that I lead. And so it's really a moral obligation for me.
3: Wow. Dr. Brace, that was uh, a very, very touching story, but also very strong, you know, personal case for change that you shared with us that I think is is going to leave us... Thinking about this for a while. Uh, really, really appreciate you sharing
0: that. Um, thank you.
1: Happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. all. Yeah,
0: and and I and I wanted to say I think um, this is maybe a good place to close it. Uh, but I I wanted to say thank you again because your story is is um, is extremely helpful on multiple fronts. Number one, I think there's plenty that any person in business can take away from the the approach that you're taking um, and really the, the passionate commitment you have to helping organizations change and, beca- and begin to thrive right um, in this space where you have you're you're moving from fear-based to just you're talking about c- caring connections and selflessness people being non-accusatory creating teams that are willing to share when they're making mistakes you know all of those elements at softway we translate those to love and, yeah. and I, I, see, I see such a deep-rooted connection in the way that you approach helping leaders recognize the opportunity and what it can mean for them, helping you know, nurses and, and, and all of these different individuals all across the spectrum see how care for one another actually translates to better performance and more reliability. Um, and I think there's plenty of lessons people can take from this conversation as to how they approach their own business.
1: Yeah, I totally agree that uh, you use the term love. I use the term endearment. I think the goal of of a leader is to have their employees endeared to their leadership, this deep affection. And I really summarize that, uh, that all people want to be cared for and they want to make a difference. And so it's up to that leader to really figure out how do you care for them? How do you make sure that they make a difference in life? And when you do, people will be endeared. To you, and you will naturally be endeared to them.
0: That's amazing. amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Rod, I I thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us. This has been a phenomenal conversation, and I just from everyone here, thank you for your time. I I do want to talk about um, love is a business strategy. We are posting new episodes every Tuesday. Is there a business topic that you would like us to cover? You, the listener, uh, let us know. You can let us know by going to our website, software.com slash labs, L-A-A-B-S. And if you like what you heard today, please, it does help to leave us a five-star review and subscribe on subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Anchor. It would mean a lot to us. So again, Dr. Rod, thank you so much for the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. it. was It was a wonderful conversation. And for our listeners, we'll see you next week.